Well, this morning we are going to continue our series in the book of John. In the book of John, we've been in here for a few weeks now, uh, and we, it's a series that's covering just the first four chapters of John, the first four chapters. And today we're going to be jumping into John chapter 2. And so if you want to follow along, I'll have the slides up here, but it's always good to open up your Bible. Uh, if you want to follow along, you can pull out a Bible from underneath the seat back in front of you. We are going to be on page, uh, page 834 this morning, 834, 834. Well, to get a little review, last week we saw Jesus call his very first disciples. We saw we were challenged by what it meant to be a disciple of Christ. In scripture, you never see the term Christian used by Jesus. It was a name that came later. Jesus called us to be disciples. disciples. And sometimes we, we like to use the term Christian, but you can't be a Christian unless you're a disciple and a follower of Christ. And so we are challenged in what that looked like. And if you missed that message, I would encourage you to listen, to make sure that you are truly following Christ in every area of your life. Now, this week, we're going to see Jesus take his disciples and they're going to go to a wedding. Just coming out of wedding season here in this, well, it's still kind of wedding season, I guess. Uh, and so we're going to follow uh, in its upcoming wedding season for some people. Hi, guys. Um, and so we're going to go to a wedding today with Jesus. Now, weddings are a time of joy, but they are also a great time of stress for anybody who has ever been married. A great time of stress. You plan for months and months and months and months on end, every little detail to plan this perfect day. And then something always seems to go wrong. I remember at my wedding, one of my groomsmen, he did, uh, he did an impression of well, who was it? it was Donald Duck. And he scared the ring bearer so bad, the ring bearer would not come down the aisle. And so Maria's dad had to pick him up, carry him down the aisle, kicking and screaming. Fortunately, that was the worst thing that happened. So not too bad. In fact, I did, uh, if you guys know Albert and, and Tawani, um, I did their, their, their reading recently, like a month ago. And for somehow in the middle of the message, like right when we were getting ready to do the ring vows, I called her Tawawa. I don't know. The words just did not come out right. And then to make it worse, everybody was like, Tawani. Like I didn't know how to make it say, say her name, which made me feel even worse. But fortunately, she's a very forgiving young lady. It was a beautiful wedding. Um, something always goes wrong. In fact, anytime I marry a couple, I, I tell them, I said, look, all the planning you're going to do, everything is great. But just know something's going to go wrong. Something will go differently than planned. And if you can be okay with that, you're going to have a great day. And so as we visit this wedding today, like all weddings, we're going to see something go wrong. And we're going to see Jesus intervene. And, 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 and what we're going to see in how he intervenes is going to reveal something about who he is that's going to give us hope this morning and going to challenge us this morning. And I pray that as you listen to these words, that where you need to be challenged and where you need to find hope, you will see it and respond to it. 
All right, so we're going to jump right in here to John chapter 2. Frank, I'm going to have you run slides for me today because I have no control up here, if you wouldn't mind. John chapter 2, verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. Now, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Verse six. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And he filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. And he said to him, everyone who serves the good, everyone serves the good wine first. And then when people have drunk freely, I love how he puts that, then they serve the poor wine. Poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first, first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. I love the way it says that. And his disciples believed in him. And after this, he went down to Capernaum and with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. This is the word of the Lord. Now, since I have arrived in New Jersey, I have learned weddings are a big deal here. Marie and I got married in Louisiana, where she is from, for a total cost of $4,000. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Four grand. Four grand, yes. And, uh, and her family, they all did potluck style, all of this stuff. And it was great, only four grand. Of course, sometimes you get what you paid for, because we took these dancing lessons, and we did this beautiful dance. And, and the, the uncle who recorded it spent more time videotaping people eating than us dancing. So sometimes you get what you pay for, but it was, it, was, it was good. It was good. But it was nothing compared to what I've experienced since I've been here in Jersey. I remember the first wedding I did in Jersey, there was something they told me I called a cocktail hour. <laughs> and I thought, like, I thought, seriously, I thought this was a place where everybody went to have a drink, like, after the wedding. But I walk into this, what it must heaven be like, this smorgasbord of food, like all of these different tables and stations of all the foods that you could eat. And you got to eat whatever you want for the whole hour. And then I was doubly shocked when I found out afterwards that wasn't the dinner. Like there was a whole nother like three course dinner afterwards. Man, I said, I am going to be up for doing weddings in Jersey. It's like, it's a new prerequisite. You know, do you have a cocktail hour at your wedding? <laughs> it was fantastic. I want to know how much of those cost. Well, weddings in the New Testament were a big deal too. Probably didn't cost as much, but they were huge. They invited, uh, the whole town was involved, and they would go on for almost a full week sometimes. A full week. And unlike today's weddings where the bride's family was responsible for the cost. The groom's family paid for everything. 
I just on a personal note, as a father of three girls, I am praying that comes back into tradition. Lord have mercy. Now, one of the things that the family, the groom's family needed to provide was wine. Wine for the entire week. Wine was a staple drink uh, in the ancient Near East. There was no refrigeration back then. And so because of the warm climate, juice would always ferment. The result would be an alcoholic beverage. Now, before you're picturing everybody walking in the Near East, walking around plastered, uh, what they would often do is commonly they would dilute their water, either to one-third or one-tenth the strength, so they would not become drunk. But it was the drink of choice. Now, what happened here at this wedding, as we read, is they ran out of wine. And this was a big deal to run out of wine. And all the Italians are like, yeah, it is. No, but it was even a bigger deal. Like, if you ran out of wine at your wedding, it would be an embarrassment. It would actually bring dishonor on your family. Get this out. I kid you not that if you ran out of wine, you could be sued by the bride's family for not living up to your commitments. You could be sued for not having enough alcohol. Enough wine, I should say. I thought like Italians took their wine seriously. You got nothing on the juice. And so that's what happens here. Like wine runs out. And so we read Mary, the mother of Jesus, who seemed to have some official capacity here, some extra biblical source that she was uh, um, the, the aunt of, of uh, the son getting married, uh, is, you know, came to Jesus and said, look, we're out of wine. We're out. And then Jesus gives her what in our culture would be kind of like a surprising response. He says in John 2, 4, he says, woman, what does this have to do with me? Now, most of us, we would get smacked a good one if we called our mother woman. Or, I mean, for those of your moms, imagine if your kid called you woman. Whoosh! Right? Because in our culture, that would be disrespectful. But one of the keys to understanding Scripture is for us to know what it means to us, we have to know what it meant to them in their context and in their culture. We often forget about this when reading the Bible. And in their language, in Hebrew, um, the word, uh, or this, this actually probably would have been Aramaic, the word uh, for woman, uni, was a polite word. It was like man. You see it used seven or eight times in the New Testament. In fact, it's the same word that the angel uses to address Mary Magdalene at the tomb on Easter morning. Okay, so Jesus is not disrespecting her. But this term he was using was also not like an intimate term that you would, you would expect between a mother and a son. And so it definitely feels like Jesus is trying to like make a point in the way that he responds. And he asked her the question, what's this have to do with me? Once again, this almost seems kind of rude. Like Jesus is saying, like, why is this my problem? But John gives us insight and why he's asking this question. Jesus follows up the question by saying, my hour has not yet come. So what's he referencing? Everywhere in the book of John, every time John referenced the word hour, it is referencing the crucifixion. 
It's referencing the time of his death. Every time. But why would he say this? Because it's not like she's saying, hey, Jesus, you know, she's not talking about the cross. She's just saying, look, I just need some wine. Little white, little red, whatever. Well, some scholars seem to, to, to think that Jesus sensed that Mary was asking for more than what the text implies. Because otherwise, this response seems out of, out of nowhere, out of left field. They think that maybe Mary had greater intentions for this moment than just getting enough to drink. As if maybe she was saying, son, now's the time. Here's your launching point. Here is the moment that you can create a great miracle and you could reveal yourself to everybody what you came to do. Give, give, a, give an unmistakable sign here, a, a manifestation of your glory to show you are the Messiah. I mean, if that, was, if that is the case, I mean, I mean, who knows the reason that Mary was feeling this way. You got to think, one thing I was thinking about, someone mentioned once that Mary, Mary, for 30 years, had been carrying around this stigma of this virgin birth. No, I didn't cheat on Joseph. I, 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 this baby's from the Holy Spirit. How many people would have believed that one, right? So she would have carried the stigma around. And so she would have been excited for this revelation that, yeah, Jesus is the Christ. Or maybe she was just excited to see him do what he was called to do. I mean, to think, to get these messages from angels, from God, about who Christ is going to be. And that you watch him for 30 years, and you're like, when is this going to happen? Either way, Jesus says, look, I'm on a divine timetable. And the revelation of my purpose on earth, it's not going to happen today. And he said, the reason is my hour has not come. I am bound to the Father's will. As he says in John 8, 28, I do nothing on my own authority. You know, and I found this, I found this response comforting to me after I figured out he wasn't being mean to his mom. <laughs> I found it comforting because it reminds me God has a plan. He has a timetable down to the second. He has things planned out. Spurgeon put it this way. He says, there are no loose threads in the providence of God. There are no stitches that are dropped, no events that are left to chance. The great clock of the universe keeps good time and the whole machinery of providence moves with unerring punctuality. So be encouraged this morning. God has a plan. He has a timetable. He has a schedule. He will not be deterred. Does that bring you joy this morning? It brings me joy, Father. I praise you, Father, for your providence. I pray you always remind us that you got a plan. That we more concerned, Father, with your timetable in our lives than ours. Amen. Well, wisely, after Jesus responds, she says to the servants, do what he tells you to do. Trust him, just do what he says. And so Jesus does help out. But if you notice, he keeps the miracle private. Only the people who were right there with him saw what he did. 
He did not go out and be like, wine, and everybody's cups just start overflowing. He was secretly about, he was secret about it. Because he understood the time. So now that we understand what was going on, we have a little context. The most important question for us now is how do we apply this? What does this mean to us? One of the things that we need to understand when reading the miracles of Jesus is they were not just displays of power, but they were signs. They were signs that were pointing to something about who Jesus was and what he came to do. So for us to understand what this means, for us to to be able to to have this view of God that this text wants us to give and to apply it to our lives, we have to understand and see these signs for what they are. And so we're going to share a few of those this morning. Now, the, the first sign that I think this miracle points to is this, is that Jesus has the power to transform. He has the power to transform. There is nothing, and you see this all throughout the New Testament, there is nothing that Jesus could not transform with his touch. Nothing. Nothing. Most of all, humanity. Because think about it. What did it say? The disciples saw this and believed. Even through a Miracle of water to wine, he began to transform his disciples. And that's where the beauty of his power of transformation comes alive is in our lives. We talked about Peter last week, right? Simon Peter, a blustering big mouth, right? A know-it-all, smelly fisherman, low on the totem pole of society. And he became a bold apostle for the gospel. How about Matthew? Matthew, he was a tax collector, hated by his own people, and he was transformed by the touch of Jesus to become a herald of the gospel for the Jewish people. Think about Mary, not the mother of Jesus, the other Mary. She was a demon-possessed harlot, and she became a herald of the resurrection. Oh, man, God has the power to transform I think of this couple in Oregon who 10 years ago, 12 years ago, showed up in my office dealing with adultery in their marriage, hanging on by a thread. And today they have a thriving marriage and they're both serving the Lord. Jesus has the power to transform. I think of all the ways that he has transformed my life. Ways that you you all don't even know. I think of the people in this church who even since I've been here, these five and a half or six and a half, however many years it's been, short years, the transformation that I've seen or that I am seeing as they look to the Lord. Oh man, Jesus has the power to transform. There's nothing his touch cannot change. This is what his miracle points to. 2 Corinthians 3.18, as we behold the glory of God, we're being transformed from one degree of glory to another. I pray that gives you hope this morning. 
to know that the one who changed water into wine is the one who can take your life and the life of those that you love and transform them completely and erratically to the core. I pray that gives you hope this morning. There is always hope in Jesus. His touch can always transform to those who look to him. Do you believe that this morning, church? Oh, I wonder what in your life he's getting ready to transform. I wonder what in your life he's transforming and you don't even see it. I wonder what person in your life you've lost hope for, but God's transforming power is always working, already working. You just don't see it yet. Jesus has the power to transform. Oh, may we never forget it. Another sign that I see is where his transformation starts. And it has to, and we see this in these jars of purification. Chapter two, verse six through seven says, now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. Now this is what the jars probably look like. I got a picture for you here. This is what they probably look like. And these pots were used uh, they had a spiritual relig- religious emphasis, right? They were used to, to wash up before meals as part of the law that the Pharisees would put down. Uh, and, and they were used in religious ceremonies to represent cleaning yourself. And yet these were the pots that Jesus said, look, come bring these, bring these purification stones, these pots, and let me fill them with water. And Jesus' miracle I see here, it's, it's pointing to a future truth that this transformation power in our lives was not going to come through ourselves in our own ability to make ourselves clean, but in his power. I mean, think the Pharisees, the religious elite, they made, remember all these laws? There was over 600, 600 laws, 600. Put your mind around that. I don't know how many of us can even remember the, the 10 commandments. This is 600 to be right with God. And Jesus said, no, no. The only way to become clean of our sins, the only way to be made right with God is not on our own merit, but on the merit of Christ Jesus, his work on the cross. In other words, another sign I see is only Jesus can make us clean. He is the only one that can wash us white as snow. Let me say it again. Only Jesus can make us clean clean. I say this because far too many of us, we're still trying to earn our way. We're trying to do good enough to feel good about ourselves because we've done enough good stuff. We stayed away from enough bad stuff. No, Jesus says it's hopeless. Our only hope is to look to our savior. He would be the one to fulfill the ceremonial cleansing with complete spiritual and eternal cleansing made by his blood upon the cross. This is why when John the Baptist saw him coming down, as we read in, in verse, uh, chapter, uh, chapter one, verse 29, where John said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. 
I mean, no wonder that Jesus instructed on the night that he's about to be betrayed. And he said, drink this cup of wine to remember this is my blood poured out for you. Because it all points back to this miracle right here. Oh, church, we don't need ritual. To get right with God, we only need to look to Jesus. We only need to look to Jesus. That is where the transformation begins. Like we sang earlier, nothing, 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 nothing has the power to save but his name. You know, another sign I see is the generosity of Jesus. The generosity of Jesus. If you did the math, Jesus produced about 120 to 180 gallons of wine. Yeah, some of y'all getting excited. May God forgive you right? If you split the middle and you said 150 gallons, if my math is right, that would be like 750 bottles of today's wine. That large amount of wine was way more than they were going to drink, I hope. Otherwise, they all need some help. And so Jesus, he not only rescued the bride and the groom in this situation, but he left over a generous wedding present. And that's one of the beautiful things about God is he doesn't give us the bare minimum in life. He he is so generous with his grace. Spurgeon again, he says, Jesus does not only supply the necessities, but he also gives luxuries. He gives not only sinners enough to save them, but he gives abundant grace upon grace upon grace after that. Think about it. He could save us and just leave us, but he gives us his Holy Spirit. He gives us his word. He gives us wisdom and comfort and strength and encouragement. He gives us the promise of heaven, which is his generosity for all of eternity. 1 Corinthians 2.9 says, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no heart of man has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. And have you thanked God for his generosity lately? We are in, we're in such a society where we're always looking at what we don't have that we forget to stop and see what we do have. I'm guilty of this myself. So this morning I was just sitting in my office, thank God, thank you for your Holy Spirit. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your patience. Thank you for your mercy. And they're all never ending. Nobody else gives you that. Everybody else puts limits, but not the Lord. Oh, our God is a generous God. Amen, church. So those are the places where we're encouraged. However, I think there's also one sign here where we should be challenged. There's there's one more thing I want to highlight, and it's such a critical part of experiencing God's transforming power in our lives. It's right here in verses 7 and 8. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. They filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. Do you see it? It is literally one of the most obvious parts of the experiencing of God's transforming power, but the one we pay the least amount of attention to. I heard someone already whisper it. The servants did what Jesus asked them to do. 
The servants did what Jesus asked them to do. Now, I'm not saying Jesus needed them for this miracle, but he chose for them to play a role. And you see this all throughout scripture. He gives people, and when he produces miracles, there is a role that he often has them play. And I tell you, the difference that I see in scripture, I see the difference I see in my life, the difference I see in the lives of the people that I pastor, between those who experience his transforming power and those who don't, is did they do what he said to do? And I meet people in their lives and they question like, why God is not working. But then at the same time, they're literally not doing what he has said to do. I wonder how many transforming miracles we miss out in our lives because we literally just don't do what he's told us to do. Now, he doesn't speak to every situation in the Bible. Like, you should take this job instead of this job. He doesn't give specifics, but the Bible speaks to how to approach every situation in our lives. But often we don't take the time to look. I, I wonder how many places in your own lives you are expecting and you're asking God to move, but you're not doing what he has told you to do. I mean... It, what if the servants overheard Jesus and Mary talking and then Jesus came to them and said, hey, go get the jars. They're like, okay, Jesus. And then they got distracted and they never went and got the jars. And then the next day they're sitting around like, man, that Jesus didn't do anything. I feel like that's what we often do. Not only do we not do what he's called us to do, we don't even spend the time looking to see what he's calling us to do. We need to do what he tells us to do. And notice this. <clears throat> there was like no conversation that John records where the servants stopped and they were like, hey, Jesus, these jars are for washing. So like, you know, I, you know, what do you, you know, come on, what are we doing? No, of course not. Why? Because they knew their place. They were servants. They were servants. The problem is we get, at least here in America, I don't know, maybe they do it in another country too, is like, if we don't fully understand why God wants us to do something, we're not on board, then we don't do it. We forget our place. Man, how many marriages do I counsel? And with this one spouse to be like, why should I love my spouse if they're not loving me the same way? Or why should I be kind and loving to this, this person that I can't stand at work? Or give me endless examples. God doesn't say, like, understand everything I'm doing. He says, my thoughts and my ways are different and higher than yours. Just do it. It's not like, I mean, we, we act like God knows what he's doing in some areas of our life and, and not in others. I do it too. And we're not going to understand a lot of it. There are things about Jesus I do not get. I will never get. But if he's an all-knowing, all-powerful God, there are going to be things we don't get. If we understood everything he was doing, he wouldn't be God. I mean, like, sometimes if you were a parent, you understand this. You know, if an adult, and a parent tells a young five or four-year-old kid why not to do something, sometimes there's certain things that you, you just, there's not words to explain to them why not to do it. You ever found that in place? You're like describing something you've never had to describe before in your life, and you're like, I don't know how to explain this to you. 
Sometimes you can be like, look, you just need to trust me and do it or not do it. You know, whatever your command is. In the same way, God's like, look, you need to trust me. Do what I say. The whole, there's a whole chapter in Hebrews in 11 that's dedicated to people who didn't understand what God was doing, and they did what he said. And he talks about the inheritance that waits for them. Or those people, as they went down that road of doing things that they did not understand how God showed up in their lives, they did what he said. Now, now maybe clarify, I'm talking about him acting in our lives when we do what he says in accordance with his word. Okay? Like... Because I, I meet people sometimes, they're like, I'm following God, and, and, and he's not giving me what I want. Well, unless it comes from the word of God, you cannot 100% for sure be able to say, I know that this is God who wants this. Like if he says, you know, if, you, if God's pressing on you to have a healthy marriage where the husband and wife love each other, man, that's in scripture. I'll tell you right now, God wants you to do that. When, when he talks to you about unity in the church and reconciling with people, well, there's scriptures there. And he says, be at peace with everyone if possible. Do everything that you can. But we get upset with Jesus because we get our hearts set on things that are not in his word. And then we get upset with him for it when it doesn't happen. Because we're just so sure. I mean, imagine, would it, would it have made sense for those servants the next morning after the wedding was over to sit around and go, man, I'm so upset with Jesus. Why? He didn't get me chocolate cake. I brought him bread and he didn't turn it into a chocolate cake. Well, that'd be foolish because he didn't say that. He never promised it. But that is what we do sometimes with God. We get upset and we may not say that out loud, but we get upset and we get defeated. And, 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 and we direct it towards God because he didn't give us stuff that he never promised he was going to give us in the first place. I mean, what things in your life are you frustrated with God at that he never really promised you in the first place? Oh, but I had a feeling. I just know God wanted this. There was signs. There was confirmation. Maybe, maybe not. But unless it's in his word, you never know for sure. And yet if you know it for sure, you definitely never know the timing for sure. Now we would save ourselves so much disappointment and defeat in our lives if we started being so much more humble about what God wants for us outside of scripture. And instead of just being so sure of things outside of scripture that we took that same confidence and we focused it in God's word when he tells us what to do in every situation. I mean, if you want to experience God's will for you, if you want to experience his transforming power in your life, if you want to experience his goodness, just keep doing what he's told you to do. Even in the common little stuff. Like go get me some jars. I'll tell you, he'll call you to do little things. Sometimes you'll be in church after service. He'll be like, hey, go ask that person how they're doing. Go ask that person for prayer. Little things, and we'll pass by them for fear or whatever reason. But even in the common little things, when God calls us, when we do what he tells us to do, that is when we begin to experience his transforming power in our lives. 
That's what's going to put us on a path to receive whatever it is that he has for us. But it will happen in a way that we're drawn closer to him in faith. That we're, that we're forced to lean and rely on him in faith. Because that's the point. To rely on him. To look to him. To focus on him. To draw closer to him and his transforming power. Oh, church. It's my prayer this morning. You'll be reminded of his transforming power. That's what you'll trust in. And you'll say, okay, God, you got the power. You can make it happen. What do you want me to do? And we'll open up his word in prayer. And then we'll have the faithfulness and commitment to be obedient to his word. And we watch him work. Amen, church.